Today we're going to get to finish our higher and deeper sermon series. So for the past three weeks, we have been uh, walking through Matthew 6. And in walking through Matthew 6, we have talked about uh, prayer, and we've talked about treasure. We've talked about anxiety. And what we've really done is say, what is Jesus saying about these things? Because we have an idea of what we're saying about them. And yet we have to go back to the scripture and say, but, but what does Jesus say? Because what our culture says, what our intuition sometimes says, what society would tell us that we should be saying is not always the same thing that Jesus says. So today it all comes together in uh, something that we're simply calling true spirituality. What does it mean? What does integrity look like when you add all of these things up kind of in that soup and you say, what does true Christ-following spirituality look like? And so I've told you this is all about Matthew 6. We're going to only be in Matthew 6. And so to start today, we're going to open up into Matthew 7. Because that's uh, the kind of rules I like to follow. So Matthew 7, verse 15 through 29. Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Jesus says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, they beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of, uh, where where do I get lost? I did this. Where, Where are we at? But everyone who hears, the rain came down, the streams rose. Oh yeah, it fell with a great crash. I did this twice. Jesus, verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against the house, it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed, amazed, circle that word at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. So we're in Matthew 6. We fast forward just a bit to Matthew 7 as he's beginning to close down the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to get back to where we were in Matthew 6 to see what this ties in and how this works. But, but here's what we need to see first. Jesus finishes this teaching, this, this three chapters of the Bible teaching. And at the close of that, in verse 28, it says they were amazed at his teaching. This is a word that, that matters in the original text. It's the, the imperfect tense of this means that it's an ongoing, unfolding, astounding amazement. You could better translate it thunderstruck. But we don't use that word very often, do we? They were, they were blown away, but not just once. They were blown away in an ongoing way. That when they thought about it, when they considered it, when they went back and talked about it again, they were more amazed and more amazed and more amazed. This is like all caps, wow. And then they'd eat dinner and they'd talk about it some more and it would get bigger and bigger. And they would just went, can you believe he said what he said? Jesus lays out two paths, one to life and one to death. There's two trees, one that has good fruit and one that has bad fruit. There's two houses, one built on rock, one built on sand. And so what what he's saying, what we don't often see when we read this, what he's saying is it's hard actually to discern on the outside. 
See, what, when we read this, we, we somehow in our minds often think, well, he says there's two trees. This is really pretty obvious, right? There's the one with the good fruit. And then in our minds, the, the other one just doesn't bear fruit. But it says it does. It bears bad fruit. Yeah, well, well I mean, you can tell which is good and bad. And Jesus is, is actually saying the opposite. He's saying you can't tell. You can't tell which one's bearing what. It's just two trees with fruit. Most of us see good, bad, and we go, I, I get it. I get it. So, so like the people who do good things, they're good. And the people who do bad things, right? That's not what he's saying at all. We went apple picking because we moved to Ohio. I don't know if you knew that. We're not from here. We got invited to go apple picking. We don't have apples in Texas. Um, we grow cactus, and there's not much to pick on those. And so this was fun. We got to go out to this orchard and um, fill up these bags full of apples. And I don't know how much we paid per pound, but it was more than the grocery store. But it was fun right? And so we're going tree to tree and picking this apple and picking that apple, and they say you can eat as many as you want as you go through the the farm, right? Which is every man's secret goal is to eat his weight in apples so as to make the price somewhat more reasonable. And then you go home with a terrible stomach ache, and it's this whole fun thing. These are fun transitions, and and we didn't know these things. Okay. And so we, we pick all these apples, and you get them home. They all look the same. And you bite into one, and it's great. You bite into another, and you're like, this, this is not good. And you hold them up to each other, and they're the exact same looking apple. One is not ugly and diseased, and one is beautiful and shiny. They're the same. But it's only when getting on the inside of it that you realize there's any difference at all. And so Jesus is saying both of these trees have an identical look. You can't tell the difference. The word bad there in in Scripture doesn't mean like shriveled. We go, oh, well, this one has bad fruit. What does that mean? It means poison. It doesn't mean shriveled. It doesn't mean disease. It means poisoned. And you can't tell the difference on the outside which one is which. The two houses, they look the same. What kind of foundation do you have on that house? I don't know. I can't see the foundation. One's on rock. One's on sand. How do you know? On the outside, you don't. They look the same. What is Jesus saying? Most people say the path is either you're obedient or disobedient. You are a good person or a bad person. And Jesus is saying quite plainly, that's not it. In verse 15, he says, watch out for false prophets. Wolves in sheep's clothing. This is not about good people or bad people. See, the word sheep was a universal term in the New Testament. That just means God's people. And so what he's saying is watch out for for God's people. Because some of God's people... Once you get under the skin, they're not what they claim to be. This is not about skeptics. This is not about atheists. This is not about uh, immoral people or, or criminal records. Or This is not about any of these moral judgments that we can make. This is the opposite. He's saying that these people, these wolves in sheep clothing, they'll look like a moral paragon. They will look like virtuous people. At times, there'll be people standing on a stage telling you about the Bible. And you won't know. What's more, he says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. So there are people who would confess Jesus as their Savior. People who would call Jesus God. What's more, Lord, Lord is a Semitic construction used for emphasis. Anytime you see something doubled up in the Bible, 
You know, Jesus will be talking, he'll say, truly, truly, I say to you, or he's on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anytime you see that doubled up uh, construction in the Bible, that's a Semitic way of creating emphasis. And so we just hear it, truly, truly, I say to you. And he's saying, listen to me. This matters. So when he says, someone comes to me saying, Lord, Lord, he's not just repeating himself for fun. He's saying, this person is on their knees going, but Lord, I called you Lord. With great emphasis, this matters. What's more, they said they did prophecies in his name. They, they did miracles. They did deep ministry. And Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. We have no connection. I don't know who you are. This is chapter 6 on full display. The reason we're dipping into 7 is because 7 tells us about 6. Because in chapter 6, what did we read the last three weeks? When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received the reward in full. Jesus said, instead, give like this. Verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Instead, he said, pray like this. When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Instead, fast like this. Verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He said, instead, treasure me. Do not worry, verse 25, about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear. He said, instead, trust me. Jesus is not contrasting good people and bad people. He's contrasting religious people and Christians. Both are praying. Both are giving. Both are fasting. Both are following the Ten Commandments. Both are treating their neighbor with kindness. This is not about good people and bad people. It's about religious people and Christ followers. And it's not about what we do. It's about why we do it. It's not the method. It's the motive. Jesus is saying, it's not the method, it's the motive. What is in your heart? Because you will not be measured by externals. Christ is giving this most incredible sermon ever given, the thing that has built so many other after it. And the core message is, this is not about externals. You will not be measured by externals. It is all about internals. I went to the doctor last year to be checked for the flu. What's a doctor? Scott and Amy Thomas were our family doctors. So shout out to them. Whoever's listening to this in Texas on a podcast can tell them that we, we didn't forget. Also, they're still listed as my general practitioner, so I may be calling them soon. Um, haven't found a doctor. I go to Dr. Thomas's office and I say, Doc, I, I think I have the flu. Uh, tell me more about that. Okay, well, body aches. Uh, my hips feel like, you know, like somebody took a sledgehammer to them. That doesn't feel right. Uh, chills, fever nausea, headache, um, how many more do you need? And he's like, That'll, that's, probably, that's probably enough. And I was like, so, you know, I'll take the Tamiflu prescription and, you know, just as many drugs as you can give me, load me up, and I'll feel better, and thanks, that was fun. And he goes, no, 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 we need to test you. And I was like, no, no, I just gave you all the answers, right? I got every symptom in the book. Trust me, I Googled this three times in my agony. I know exactly what I have, right? I'm the only one who does that. So he says, you know what? I believe you, but I'm not convinced. It doesn't mean you have the flu, so I don't want to give you unnecessary drugs, so I'm going to send my nurse in to test you. This nurse comes in. Her name was Irma. She has a Q-tip that's like four feet long, and I'm wondering where she's going to put that, and she um, 
gets my nose, and she takes the Q-tip, and she swabs like, I don't know. Something in the back of my brain gets rubbed, and then she pulls the Q-tip out, and then she rubs it on a Petri dish. She says, it'll take 10 minutes. We'll get back to you. He comes in, and he says, you know what? You, you don't have the flu. I said, well, I have something. And he goes, well, yes, you do, but it's not the flu, and so we're not going to medicate you for something you don't have. He goes, because here, here's the reason. Exhibition of symptoms is not the same as testing positive for a condition. The exhibition of symptoms is not the same as testing positive for a condition. So it is with faith. This is what Jesus is pointing out. The exhibition of symptoms is not the same as having the condition. Doing these good things doesn't mean we're in relationship. Being religious doesn't mean you know me. Verse 15 of chapter 7, he called it ferocious wolves. These, these ferocious wolves in sheep's clothing. This is really important. Every other place that word ferocious is used in the Bible actually refers to blackmail or extortion. Why does that, what, that doesn't make any sense. So they're blackmailing wolves on the inside? Like that, contextually, that, that doesn't help us. What does this mean? Go back to chapter 6. They, they give to be seen. They pray to be heard. They fast to be honored. Deep inside, there's something that needs to be convinced that they're valuable. All of us have this thing inside of us that needs to be convinced I'm significant, I'm valuable, I matter. So much of why we do anything is to gain a sense that we're worth something. That my life amounts to something of consequence that, that people might remember me. So, so much of our parenting is driven by the desire to be loved and remembered. So much of our work is driven by the desire to be respected or admired. So much of our faith is driven by a desire to be part of something transcendent, something bigger than myself, because in and of myself, I feel small. And so what does it mean to be a blackmailing wolf on the inside? This is to look at God and turn the tables. What religion does, religion is a power play. Religion is our ability to say, if I live this way, then you owe me. If I do right things, you have to bless me. If I live this way, you have to give me. It's blackmail. It's extortion. I'm doing this stuff, God. Where is my reward? I'm earning my way. Where is my reward? It creates a poisonous inside. Like the fruit. It creates a poison inside. Religion creates poison in that we have this constant feeling of judgment of others to be sure we're measuring up. To be sure we're still looking like that favored son and daughter who's earned the reward. We're constantly having to measure ourselves against others. It creates a rigidity and a calcification that actually leads to death. We just have it backwards. I brought an example of what this might look like. This is a picture that was pinned on my wall in my office. I literally just ran and got it five minutes ago. Uh, Brixton drew this, my four-year-old. At the top, it's got some lines. I don't know if you can see these lines really well. It also says bricks and then something like poop or something right there. And then she wrote popcorn or someone else wrote popcorn for her. And then there's a really crummy rainbow. My children give me art. Terrible art. Right, there's moms in here going, oh, but it's, it's her art. It's priceless. This is not worthy of the recycle bin. This is terrible. Like by any objective standard, this is the worst piece of art ever created, right? It has no 
objective value in the entire world. There, it's really poorly done. The lines are bad. The, everything's off. The rainbow doesn't look like a rainbow. It looks like, I don't know, like a unicorn. I don't know. It's not good. But what my kids want to do is bring me art and say, because I made this for you, now you'll love me more. Because I made this for you, now you'll love me more. Dad, look what I did for you. Do you love me more? And it's a constant plea for more love and more attention and more affection. And what they don't realize is I loved them more than I could ever love them before they ever knew how to draw crummy art. And none of their art, none of their nonsensical pushings at me have any bearing on how much I love them. I first love them. And so rather than outside in going, Dad, if I do another one of these, will you love me more? What I want them to do is from the inside out to recognize the reason they want to make more art for me, the reason they want to keep putting stuff on my wall, is because on the inside they feel so overwhelmed with love that they cannot help but express it in some way, even in an insufficient way. And that's what we are. We're in a place that if we're in religion, we're constantly going to God going, look what I did, look what I drew, look what I did, and God's going, gosh, crumbles it up, throws in the, that's not what it's about. What God yearns for is children who are so full on the inside that we have no other choice but to just keep creating goodness for him, to keep laying things at his feet and going, look what we did, dad. Look what I did, papa. We have a father who loves us more than we could ever imagine. And we think by doing one more good thing, by, by checking one more religious box, we're going to make him love us more. It disappoints him. Come on, you think that's going to earn my love? You have no idea how precious you are. He wants us so full that we can't help but give. Chapter 6, over and over, Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites who say one thing, but really it's, it's something else. Who, who say do this, but really they, they do that. This is this outside-in living. If I do this stuff, maybe God will bless me. And Jesus says the fruit on the tree isn't there to give life. We're looking at it wrong. The fruit on the tree isn't there to ingest and give life. The fruit is there as a result of life. That the fruit is an outflowing of life. So Christianity is an inside-out paradigm. We have to switch the whole way we see the world. It's inside fullness that creates outside movement. Christianity is inside fullness that creates outside movement. Not an outside movement to fill an inner absence. Religious fervor is outside movement trying to fill an inner absence. And Christianity at its core is an inner fullness that creates outside movement. Religion works to fill an inner emptiness. Christianity works because of an inner fullness. It's a profound difference. Religion works outside in. Christianity always works inside out. And this is part of why they were so amazed and astounded when they finished his teaching. Jesus didn't come with a fulfillment of their religious hopes, but he came to do away with their religion entirely. And he doubles down and he says, not all who come to me and say, Lord, Lord. What he's doing is he's asserting himself not only as this great teacher, but he says, I'm more than that. I am judge. Capital J. See, only God can make that claim. He says, not all who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, emphasis, Lord, Lord. 
And by continuing on with this sentence, he is affirming to them that he sees himself as God. Which is radical and scandalous and eventually gets him killed. Because in order to be God, you would have to have infinite knowledge. Because you cannot be a judge without perfect knowledge. In order to be God, in order to be the judge, you have to have infinite goodness. Because how else can you decide what's good and what's not? Jesus casually says, oh, not all who come to me. And they're looking around going, wait a minute, did he just, did he just claim to be God? And it's as if Jesus goes, mm-hmm. So he says, I'm not only going to lay out the paths, but I'm the judge. And then here's the sentence. I never knew you. Listing what you've done and then demanding something from Jesus based on your record doesn't work, is what he tells them. That following Jesus, becoming a Christian, what it does, Christianity forces us to look at an exhausting mountain of good deeds and still see no merit and no path to heaven. Christianity forces us to look at an exhausting mountain of good deeds, live your entire life doing good things, and still not see salvation in your work. Religion comes like a wolf in sheep's clothing, and yet Jesus is the true sheep, the true, the perfect lamb. To be a Christian is to see that Jesus laid his life down to fill us, to replace our emptiness with his saving fullness, and so in relationship, we find everything we need in him. Every other idol, every other god, every other religious thing is a wolf masquerading as a lamb. They all claim to fill you. They claim to save you. And yet every single one leaves us empty, leaves us insignificant, and leaves us unfulfilled. Try them. Chase money. It doesn't fill you. Chase lust. It doesn't fill you. Chase status. Chase relationship. Chase significance. Chase any of it. All of them are dead ends that lead to unfulfillment. All of them are dead ends that lead to insignificance. And all it does is forces us to look back inwards and go, this is not it. Only when we then recognize that we cannot fill ourselves from the outside. But that through Jesus we're filled on the inside. Only then does life even begin to make sense. This is why when people are going through hard times, you'll hear someone with a great deal of wisdom say they actually do need to hit rock bottom. Because it's only at the end of yourself that you realize that nothing of yourself is going to get the job done. But we have to go down every single path to go, maybe I could, maybe I, what if I, maybe I. And then at the point of exhaustion, you go, there is literally nothing else I can do. And it's at that lowest point that God says, exactly, I'm so glad you found me. And he sticks his hand out and he says, let me lift you up. You're mine. I loved you before your first good deed. I loved you after your last major sin. And I loved you not because of anything you could do for me, but because of who I am and who you are. You are my son. You are my daughter. Jesus is taking religion, which breeds self-righteousness, and destroying it. Since goodness and wholeness and safety and eternity is ultimately found only in him, and it's only when we are found in him in relationship that we're safe eternally. They were ultimately made good and whole because it's in him and him alone. Relationship with Jesus changes you from the inside out. It actually kills the exhaustion of the outside-in rat race. So maybe today you recognize that your life is actually more religion than you, than you thought. I know I've been in that place 
where I find that my days are spent trying to earn back the salvation I was freely given. That if I just do enough today, maybe then God will think he made a good investment in me. And yet scripture would say that all of my best work is like filthy rags laid at his feet. All of my best work is poorly drawn art laid at the feet of the Father, hoping that because of that I might be worthy of his love. What the Bible is saying is that it is only in the throes of relationship that we find security. It's only in the throes of relationship we find wholeness. And every day that we go on living for religion is another day we waste because we don't get to bask in the security of his goodness and his love. So maybe you recognize that. And you say, you know what, in these areas I'm actually doing it right, but in this, this, and this, man, I am the most religious person you'll ever meet. And when it comes to my money, I, I'm only generous because I want God to pat me on the back or replace those funds. I'm only graceful because I, I want others to see me being graceful. I'm all, if that's true of us in any space, today is a good day to lay that down. You can change it. Every day is an opportunity to change course, to recognize. And so today, we'll do introspection. Because nobody's going to know but you. Today the offer is to lay your life down again in fullness. To take the new life offered by Jesus and actually rest in it. So on every seat, there's a little slip of paper that says religion. And there's about 20 other phrases on the other side, and I don't know which one you got. And I don't know if it's just the right one for you. I didn't know where you were going to sit, so don't blame me later if it's too perfect. And if it has nothing to do with you, hand it to your neighbor and say, hey, maybe you're the one who has this problem. But we have religion. And I wanted to give you a physical piece of religion so that we can make a physical representation of what it takes for us to live this life in relationship with Jesus. So we can have a physical act a symbolic act that allows us to get in our heads, this is what it means to follow him. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And what we're going to do is we're going to make a declaration. We're really going to say, I will be yours. And in exchange, I have to lay down religion. I have to actually set religion down at your feet and say, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. And so when we take communion today, these two black tables, your opportunity is you work through that introspection and say, where is it that I need to really lay some things down? Where is it that religion has crept in and I need to go back to relationship? Maybe it's all of life. And this is a great day to jump into relationship with Jesus. But your opportunity is when you go to take communion and when we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, before we do that, you have something in your hand that you have to first be willing to lay down. Because to lay down religion and then to pick up the bread that represents his body that was broken for us and dip it in the cup that represents his blood that was shed for us, that's the picture. We started in this series by saying no one can serve two masters. Jesus said you can't serve two things at once. We are not saved by religion and relationship. And before we can take hold of Jesus and say, yes, save me, we have to first lay down the idea that we save ourselves. And so 
As a family, we take communion. If you are a guest with us, if you're new with us, or if that makes you uncomfortable to put bread in, in juice and, and think it's something else, we're okay with that. Maybe this is a time for you to sit and reflect. Maybe this is a time for you to let the words of the songs wash over you. Maybe you're skeptical and you go, I don't even quite believe this whole thing yet, and you're in the right place. For us, this is a symbolic moment. It's a weekly remembrance. And today we get to lay something down to then pick up what really matters. And my hope, my prayer, is that in doing so, you and I will on some level access the higher and the deeper that God offers. Because the life in the shallows is always there for us, and yet the higher and the deeper is such a place of immense beauty and fullness and goodness and grace. And so my prayer is that we would have that together. Heavenly Father, God, I could list so many things in my life that get invaded by religion. So many days that I am self-sustaining, so many days that I'm more worried about what I can do, my agenda, my priorities, my work. Father, I think that I earn or that I deserve, that it's my reward or my compensation that somehow my prize for my life and my works is the result of me and my goodness. So, Father, I lay that down today. Steal the religious bones from my body. Father, replace them with more of you. Breathe life and hope and love into those places and remind me that you first loved me. Father, remind us that no matter what we lay at your feet, no matter what artwork we put down in front of you on your desk, that you look at us and you go, I loved you before you wrote it. Whether it's good or bad or anything else, I loved you more than you could ever imagine. Father, let that be true in us. Let that be real for us. So that as we lay something down today and we remember what you did for us, we would say, I will be yours. Truly and with honest hearts with all of our lives. Father, thank you for Jesus for his death on the cross, for his resurrection, for our salvation. Thank you for the way that you loved us so radically. And my prayer is that, Father, in response, out of an inward overflow, we would be a people who would love you radically and love this city radically. Not as a way to earn your favor, but as a way to honor your goodness. Thank you, Lord. We pray in your son's name. Amen.